I were to ask you to list out <clears throat> some of the famous passages of Scripture, whether you're a Christian or not, in all likelihood, this particular story we'll look at this morning will make your list. Again, whether you're a Christian, a Sunday schooler, you've been in church your whole life, or, or not, you more than likely have heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a famous story, um, so famous that it is recorded for us uniquely um, as a non-resurrection miracle. So obviously the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's the most pivotal, critical moment in human history, worth being repeated. What's noteworthy, however, is that aside from the resurrection of Jesus, the only miracle performed by the Lord, documented uh, by the, the gospel authors is this feeding of the 5,000, this singular, unique event. No doubt, no question, that for everyone that was present, this was such a monumental, radical uh, thing that it, it, it stuck with them. It never left them. In fact, if you're going to chronicle the life of Jesus, of all the things, and really you should keep in mind that of all the things you would write, the challenge for many of the authors is, is what to exclude. You know, there was a limitation in how you could record things in the ancient world. They didn't have books like we have books. They, they recorded things on scroll, on parchment. There was a limitation of the amount of space that you could write something down in its totality for it to then be circulated, to, for it to be copied. I mean, John, he closes up his, his gospel saying, there's so much more that could have been could have been written about the ministry of Jesus, that, that there's not enough books, not enough parchments, not enough libraries to record it all. So one of the challenges for the gospel authors isn't so much what to include, but what to exclude. But of everything, the feeding of the 5,000, I mean, these men, it made such an impact. It was so radical. They're like, this has to be recorded. Matthew, who was an eyewitness to it, records it. You have John. John chapter 6, John also, an eyewitness to the event, records it. Luke, not an eyewitness, but wrote with the intention of documenting history through the interviews of eyewitnesses, no doubt includes his narrative from the eyewitness testimony of, of also those who had been present. And, and Mark writing really as a dictation of, of the recollections of Peter. Peter notes it, and so Mark documents it as well, recorded in all four gospel narratives. The feeding of the 5,000. Now, what is it, per se, that makes the feeding of the 5,000 so noteworthy? Again, it is a radical thing. Taking loaves of bread and fish, breaking it, multiplying it. We'll look at the miracle itself in a few minutes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of anyone doing that before. I mean, that's significant. That's important. That's worth documenting. And yet there seems to be something deeper about the miracle, about the scene, about the setting, about the timing. There seems to be something underneath just the surface of it all that, that was so important. It's documented and repeated four times for us in the Gospels. Again, to me, most amazingly, John, who writes many years after the synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke write, for the most part, around the same time frame. They record a lot of the same history. Synoptic. They're uh, synonymous with each other. John writes much later, and John, even writing later, documenting a lot of things that weren't included in the first three, are like, yep, got to put this one in as well. Got to make sure that the feeding of the 5,000 is, is there. So what makes this, this particular miracle so radical, so revolutionary, so worthy of our study and our attention? 
Now, again, we're going to start, and, and I'll read this for you. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul makes an observation about the Old Testament that begins our quest for deeper meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, writing to the church of Corinth, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, and he's speaking of the Old Testament, of the Jewish people, of, of the forerunners, they were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. He's referring to uh, the passing uh, of the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, being led by the cloud. He says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate of the same spiritual food. All drank of the same spiritual drink. For they all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered throughout the wilderness. Now these things, verse 6, and this is the key verse, these things, speaking of the Old Testament, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then Paul continues on uh, developing his thought. The underlying idea that Paul is, is presenting for us that's worthy of our consideration is that the Old Testament, these stories, these literal historical stories of God's deliverance of the children of Israel uh, out of the land of Egypt, him leading them through the wilderness, taking them to the promised land, that all the things that happened, yes, literal, historical, factual, but they were all examples that there were different uh, spiritual meanings, that there were deeper lessons hidden beyond just the pages and the words themselves. It's been said, and, and again, this is kind of a good rule of thumb for the Bible student, that the best commentary of the Old Testament, and, and you guys attend a Bible teaching church. There's a lot of churches in America today that, that abandon the teaching of the Old Testament, that think that the Old Testament is not relevant. I find that to be absolute garbage and hogwash. Uh, if, if you don't think the Old Testament has purpose and meaning, uh, first, it was the Bible Jesus found very important and quoted from and read. Uh, but all of the precedents for the New Testament are concepts of grace. The book of Genesis, it is the genesis of grace. You want to know about grace, look at the book of Genesis, the most grace-centric book of the Bible. Why? Because there's no law. We don't even have the law to Exodus 20. There's no law in Genesis. It's all grace, and it all established for, for us precedents, principles, important spiritual lessons. You read throughout the Gospels, and all of the, 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 the imagery, all of the, the typology, the symbols, the stories get referred to. The greatest commentary, the best way to understand what's really happening in the Old Testament is to look at the New Testament. And to take New Testament ideas and concepts and stories and connect them back to where they should land in the Old Testament. Again, you can't have the new without the old. They're interconnected. And Paul makes this point here uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians that we have to look back. Sometimes you'll, you'll encounter something in the New Testament. You'll encounter something in the life of Jesus. And you're like, that is radical on its surface. But if you connect it back to the Old Testament, you begin to un uncover a depth of meaning that's significant. Now, again, we're going to kind of get the cart a little bit before the horse. If you would flip to Exodus, chapter 16, we have recorded a pretty radical story in its own right. Again, the children of Israel have been liberated from Egypt. Moses didn't deliver the people from Egypt. It's a misconception. God delivered the people from Egypt. Moses was nothing but a representative. He was a vessel. He was an instrument. 
Moses was reluctant to start with. At the burning bush, he, he, he starts arguing with God. I stutter. You can find somebody else. I'm not the right guy. God sends him anyway, you know. And then while there, Moses confronts Pharaoh, who he knew. Let my people go. No, I'm not going to do that. And then we have these plagues that get dumped out on Egypt. Pharaoh hardening his heart all the way up to the final, the death of the firstborn. Moses was the mouthpiece. He was the instrument. God delivered the people. And they came through, they left the land, they get to the Red Sea, as some of you know the story, but to recap a little history, Pharaoh changes his mind at the last minute. The children of Israel are backed up against the Red Sea. The armies of Pharaoh are making their descent. Moses prays, stretches out his arms. The Red Sea parts. The children of Israel make their way through dry land to the other side. The armies of Pharaoh pursue. The waters come crashing back in. Again, God liberating the people. Now, the people of Israel are in the wilderness making their way back to the land of their fathers. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promised land. We're told, chapter 16, the book of Exodus, verse 1. And we're going to read kind of the whole chapter just to establish some context. This will all make sense by the time we get to the end of the study. Lord willing. We're told that they journeyed from Elam. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So we're just weeks into the escape. We're in the wilderness. Elam was a great, a great landing spot. You study the history of it. Elam had, had plenty of water. It was an oasis. had tons of shade and palm trees. It was a great place to hunker down in the wilderness. Great place. And yet the cloud moves and the people move with the cloud. God leading them back to the land of promise. So as they're making their way, they leave Elam and they're making their way to Mount Sinai. And this is uh, where the presence of God dwelt. This is where uh, God would establish the organization of his people. God would give and codify the law. God would give the instructions on the building of the tabernacle. This is when God at Sinai begins to take his people who are nothing more than just a group of, of, of ethnic slaves from Egypt, and he's going to make them, this ragtag group of two to three million people, he's going to, to form them into a people at Sinai. Now they're making their way. We're told that they find themselves in what's called the wilderness of sin. Kind of a poor translation. Sin, a lot of different interpretations for this word in the Hebrew, could very well just be an abbreviation of Sinai itself. Uh, some would interpret it as zen, not necessarily sin. Probably harsh terrain, not, not, not the best place uh, to be making a pilgrimage, but was a necessary part of the journey. So they find themselves in this wilderness, the wilderness of Sinai, you could translate. And we're told, verse 2, that the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now keep in mind when we read this, the things that these people have seen. Okay? I mean, they've seen Moses, you know, take his rod and throw it on the ground, and it turn into a serpent. And then Pharaoh has his sorcerers do the same, but Moses' serpent staff eats the other ones. You know, they've seen the Nile turn to blood. They've seen the, the frogs and the lice. and I mean, they've seen some radical things. Not to mention, hey, guys, how are we going to get from Egypt to the promised land? We're going to have this big divine cloud. You know, if you're wanting to 
make your way through desert. And we often think of the cloud being led by the cloud by day. As the cloud was up ahead and when the cloud moved, they followed. And yet if, if, if you're in the desert, where's the best place to be? In shade. So it was more of God like in the cloud giving them shade and protection in the wilderness. And when your shade moves in the desert, you should move with the shade. And then we're told at night, it's like, well, the shade doesn't help. And it gets cold in the wilderness, in the desert. And so God warmth, gave them warmth through a, 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 a pillar of fire. I mean, they've seen this stuff with their own eyes. The Red Sea part. Amazing things. And yet here they are. And we're talking weeks from it. And now they're, they're in the wilderness. They're complaining. And the children of Israel, verse 3, said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You know, our recollection of the past is very quickly skewed, isn't it? Especially when we, when we find ourselves rooted in complaining. Like they're, like they're rewriting history of like two months ago when they weren't like sitting by full pots of, like they were slaves. And yet here they are, their bellies are, are rumbling, they're hungry, and so they start complaining. So the Lord, verse 4, said to Moses, Behold, <laughs> I love it, they're hungry, okay. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law or not. Interesting, the law had not been given quite yet. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and that shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. Notice Moses is like, you're not complaining against me. Be careful who you're complaining against. It's God. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. He's heard your complaints, but what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. What are we? Your complaints against us are not us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quells came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is that? For they did not know what it was. And the Lord said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, verse 19, let no one leave any of it till morning, notwithstanding, though, they did not heed Moses. 
but some of them left parts of it until morning. And so the, it, it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Verse 21, they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. When the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil. So there was various recipes for this stuff. And lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. And Moses said, eat that today, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord, that you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And Moses is like, wait, what? It's not my fault. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives on the sixth day, bread for two days, let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name, speaking of this, this bread, manna. Manna can be translated literally as what is it? They're like, what is it? They're like, that's a good name. We're going to brand it, what is it? And it was like, and, and then we're given a description, white coleander seed. That it was the taste like wafers made with honey. Think of like small donuts. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread from which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot, put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept and the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And just in case you were curious, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Here they are. They're in the wilderness. They're hungry. Which, honestly, in, in some regards, you can sympathize. I mean, hunger is a basic need. It's not as though that they were complaining about luxuries. You know, it wasn't as though here they are in the wilderness and they're complaining about air conditioning or they're complaining about, you know, fill in the blank, some, some fringe luxury. No, they're, they're complaining about, like, I'm hungry. They're like, God, we're out here in the wilderness. There's no Mickey D's. Uh, there's no falafel maker. Like, like we're hungry. Can you provide us food? And, I mean, this is a large group of people. So, I mean, it's not as though that the land itself would yield enough natural uh, produce to feed such a massive group of people. So the complaint here is rooted in a basic need, and God doesn't exactly go against the complaint. He provides. He's like, okay, you're hungry. I get it. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some meat, quail. The implications within the text isn't that the quail came every day, but came periodically as they would need meat. But what did come, the sustenance that God did provide, is this manna from heaven, bread from heaven. The dew would be laid, and the dew would rise, and it was like this, this small seed-like material. 
You know, we often think of manna as like loaves of bread laying on the ground. Your job was to go collect it. It was more of a material according to the description. It was a seed-like substance. It was different. They didn't know what it was, which is why they called it what they did. And they would collect it, and then you would bake it. You would cook it. And for 40 years, they would eat this stuff. And God provided. And this was such a significant thing, such an important thing, that Moses then commands Aaron to take some of it, put it in a jar, and we'll find that it later gets placed in the Ark of the Covenant right there along the, the budded staff of Aaron's, showing the Levitical order, and also the, the, the two tablets, the commandments. And it was to be kept as a testimony. You had a need in the wilderness, and God provided according to your need. He took care of you. I do find it interesting and worth noting that for six days, they were to go collect this stuff. And God would give, uh, they were only to take what they needed for the provision of the day to the point that Moses tells them, don't take more. This is not like leftovers. This spoils quickly, doesn't last in Tupperware. And some don't, didn't listen. They collect more thinking, hey, for the next day, but they're not trusting God and it spoiled. It bred worms, it, it was rotten, it stank according to the text. And then on the sixth day, they were to go out instructed to collect twice as much because on the seventh, God would not provide because he already had, and they were to rest and chill out. Interesting, worth noting, this is the first time in the scriptures you have mention of the Sabbath. Beforehand, it's called the seventh day in, in its Genesis context. God created six, rested on the seventh. No mention of the Sabbath day until this moment. This is before the law. This is before they get to Sinai, before they're given the particular instructions of not just the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but then also the Sabbath year, uh, the, the 49th, the year of Jubilee, etc. This is the first mention. I'm going to take care of your needs. Take a day off. Now they had to trust. They had to go out and collect, and they had to trust God. Now, we have this context. We have this story. There's this wonderful picture that's taking place. Now let's get to Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard it, pause. Heard what? Well, within the context of the verses leading up to verse 13, John, uh, Matthew has provided us this account of the end of John the Baptist. I say the end, really the beginning of glory, but the end of his earthly life. John the forerunner, paving the way for Jesus, preparing the people for the Messiah, preparing the hearts for the Christ. John dies. He gets beheaded. He's executed by Herod the Tetrarch. The body's taken by the disciples. It gets buried. And they immediately, in verse 12, we're told that they bring word to Jesus. So Jesus hears about John's death. And there's a few things that should be pointed out about this development. Uh, first, uh, this would have hit Jesus particularly hard. Jesus, yes, God in the flesh, but still God in flesh. And Jesus had emotions, similar emotions that you and I, you and I face. Jesus knew John, likely knew John from childhood. They were cousins. They were family. Jesus had an affinity for John, a love for John, a connection with John. To get word of John's death, yes, Jesus knew what would happen in advance. 
And yet you can imagine that there was an emotional, um, there was a moment. You know, even when you know, when you know a death is coming, when you know that the, the diagnosis, that's, it's inescapable, it's going to happen, you're there with a loved one, you, you, know, you know what's coming. You can't get around it, you're aware. And it still happens, and it, and, it, and it grips you, doesn't it? You can't escape the raw emotions of it. Jesus can't. And so he gets word of John's death. The other thing that should be pointed out about that detail, I think, which is important for our story this morning, is that if Jesus is getting word of the death of John the Baptist, you can figure that word has spread. Again, you got to take yourself back into the scenario, into the scene, into the political environment of the day. You know, Herod the Great ruled with, with an iron fist. He was not beloved by the people. The Jewish people are constantly on the verge of some type of revolution. Study their history over the last 300 to 400 years of captivity. There had been revolutions. Judas Maccabeus re- leading one of, the, one of the most famous. John was a hero to the people. The people loved John. They admired John. Even Herod. Even Herod. Herod recognized that John was a righteous man, recognized that John was a prophet sent by God. The people knew it. The people had gathered to him. He was famous in his day. And yet, because he's speaking truth to power, and, he, and he's making some, some powerful enemies in the process, Herod has him arrested, but Herod doesn't have him executed. Why? He feared the people. Why? Because the people were to be feared. Your main job when it came to being an ethnic leader under the Roman Empire was to keep peace. Pax Romana was the most important thing. You had to keep the peace. Rome would allow you to operate with a measure of autonomy as long as you were peaceful, didn't rebel, didn't cause problems, and you pay taxes. As long as you did those two things, they were uh, amicable to allow you to govern yourselves. And so Herod hands the kingdom to four. There's this tetrarch. His number one job is to keep the peace. So he has John. John's a hero. He's recognized as a prophet of God. He wants to put him to death. He knows he can't because he, he fears a revolution. He fears a riot. Now... He has this party. Things kind of spiral a little out of control. He makes a promise he shouldn't have made. He keeps his promise. John gets executed. Jesus gets word of it, but you can imagine everyone has gotten word. I mean, this was front news story. John is dead, and not just dead, but he got beheaded. He was slaughtered like an animal. Why? Because Herod threw a party and he made a promise. He wasn't like arrested, tried, convicted for some crime. I mean, this was unjust. This was wrong. In a sense, this was a tipping point. Understand, in its context, in its culture, in its moment. And Jesus is up in the Galilee. And word gets to Jesus, meaning word is spread around the area. And people are not happy about it. People are curious, what will Jesus do about it? What can be done? So Jesus hears of it, and then what does he do? He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Now, if you're the crowd, and you're looking at Jesus, and you get word of John, and, and, and you now know that Jesus knows about John, and then what does Jesus do? Now, we can, we can understand that Jesus wants to probably get alone by himself. He wants to grieve. 
But Jesus, imagine, again, if you're just a citizen, a resident of Galilee, you're there, you're looking at Jesus, John's dead, he gets in a boat with his 12 peeps. They, they go to a deserted place. They're in the desert, the wilderness. What is Jesus doing? Why is he doing it? Could it be, and here's my theory, that the people expected Jesus at this point to finally do what they expected him to do. Jesus was going out into the wilderness. It was a clarion call for the followers to come out because they were going to arm up, gear up, and they were going to go exact vengeance on Herod. That Jesus might have been playing it safe, might have been keeping it close to the vest. That Jesus, you know, was walking along. But at this point, how could Jesus stand idly by? John has been executed. It's time to ride or die, baby. We're doing this, and he goes out into the wilderness, and people are thinking, this is the moment. Things have tipped. So he departs to a deserted place by himself. Let me give you a little bit more justification for why I think that that's the scene, that's the setting for what happens. At the end of all of this, and, and we find this in, in other gospel accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, at the end of this whole scene, Jesus immediately, Mark says, speaking of urgency, the reaction of the people is like, great, you fed us, this is cool, but let, we're doing this. In fact, they were all determined in this moment to make him king. And, and I don't know if you're aware, but if there's a king governing an area and the people make a new king, there's immediately a conflict that will ensue inevitably. This is such an alarming thing that happens that we're told that Jesus, he takes the 12, because he knows these men, and he puts them into a boat, and he's like, you guys go, I'm going to dismiss the crowd. We have no idea how Jesus actually does disperse the crowd. I think it was probably supernatural in nature. But Jesus pumps the brakes. I think that the reaction at the end of them wanting to make Jesus king is the expectation they all have when we're told, look at it, that the multitudes, they heard it, and they followed him on foot from the cities. So they all leave the cities to go out into the wilderness. Again, if you jump to 20, verse 21, we're told those who had eaten were about 5,000 men. Interesting, Matthew places this within the context of the men. And I see them coming out with pitchforks, whatever makeshift uh, instruments of war they have. And it was besides the women and children. So, so we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. We're looking at 20, 25, 30. Uh, who knows how many thousands of people leave the city. News, John's been executed. Jesus gets word. We're looking. He gets in the boat. He's going to a deserted place. Let's do this. And thousands of people come out to Jesus. And when Jesus went out, he saw the great multitude. And he was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick. We're also given the other indication from the other narratives of the story that Jesus also taught them. Most notably, he taught them about the kingdom. It's likely that the substance of chapter 13 and the kingdom parables was likely what Jesus spoke to them about, what he was teaching them. So the people come out and Jesus speaks to them. And he's teaching them. And he's moved with compassion for them. The word compassion, it's to have your pain in my heart. 
It's to be moved in the gut. It's not just to understand what somebody is going through in an intellectual standpoint, but to feel it. Jesus felt what they were feeling. He understood what they were going through. He had compassion. And so he teaches them about the kingdom. And then he starts to heal the sick. And when it was evening, verse 15, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, this is a deserted place. Duh. The hour is late. No kidding. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, this is something that should, should pique your interest a little bit. You won't find too many examples of the disciples giving Jesus instructions on what to do. Kind of an interesting tidbit about this story. They're like, Jesus, not sure if you're aware, this is a deserted place. Thank you. And not only that, the hour is late. I can tell. You need to send the people away to go get food. Jesus, you, you clearly didn't think this all the way out. They give Jesus instructions. But Jesus said to them, eh, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> and they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. Now, again, just adding some context. There's a little bit of time that, that Jesus, you need to send the people away to go get something to eat. And Jesus is like, nah, I don't think that we really need to do that. You feed them. And the, the guys kind of have a huddle. They're like, well, we really don't want to let them down. So what do we got? And the disciples got nothing. None of them packed a lunch. And so Andrew actually finds a little boy whose mom had been smart enough to send him with some, some lunch, some food. So they steal his lunchbox. Because they come to him and, and they're like, hey, we have. <laughs> we don't have much, Jesus. Actually, you had nothing. You stole it from a kid. We have only five loaves and two fish. You know, again, it just kind of blows my mind as to just, you know, you read through it and you, you pass the humanity of it. Like, if Jesus told you to feed five to to 25,000 people, are you coming back to Jesus with five loaves and two fish as a remedy? Like in the moment, I think that there's some sarcasm here. It's like, Jesus, you should send them to go find something to eat. No, you feed them. What do we got, guys? We, we don't have anything. And so they come back, well, here, here you go. We have five loaves and two fish. Making the point of you should send them away to find something to eat. And then Jesus said, bring them here to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. Another account tells us that this was actually organized. Fifties, groups of a hundred. This was all laid out. And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. <coughs> and he looked up to heaven. And he blessed and he broke and he gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, so that they took up 12 baskets 
full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. What a moment. I mean, again, this is why this particular miracle gets all the press that it does. I mean, that scene. Now understand exactly what's happening, kind of the mechanisms of this. Jesus has the five loaves, he has the two fish. And when we're talking about five loaves, we're talking about like basic like, like wafers. Again, this was the lunch for a little kid. This is not a whole lot of food. It's a lunchable, you know? It's a lunchable. And so he takes this, and he's like, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. You need to get everybody organized. Have them all sit down. And then he looks up to heaven, and he blesses it. He, he prays for it. You know, could we have not gotten more documentation? You know, what was the prayer like? And then, and then the way that things seem to happen is that Jesus begins to distribute what is completely 100% inadequate resources. Lunch for a kid, he begins to, to distribute it to the disciples. And that in the process of distributing the loaves and, and the fish to the disciples, within his very hands, a miracle is taking place of replication. As Jesus is distributing it, it is manifesting in his hands in real time. To the point of like, where's the other Lunchables coming from? As it's happening in the moment. And he's giving this to the disciples. And they've got baskets and they're going around and they're feeding people. And people are coming for seconds and thirds. We're told that everybody ate till they were filled. This wasn't like, hey, a little snack to get you home. It's like people, people are loosening the belt buckles. People are sitting back, fat and hungry, fat and full, feeling good. People are thinking, like, we're camping out tonight. I ain't getting, I ain't walking home. And then there's 12 baskets of leftovers. I mean, as Jesus is breaking it, again, I love it. He blessed, and then he broke it, and then he gave it. And then it was the disciples' job to give it to the multitudes. So from a macro perspective, what is happening here? Well, for the, a bit of clarity, you don't have to turn there. But in John's account, we're told that on the following day, John 6, verse 22, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no boat there, except one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples. His disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they had ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats. They came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may, that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? 
And here's the example that they give. Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to Jesus, Lord, give us this bread always. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Big picture. The people come out in desperation and expectation. The people come out hoping, believing that Jesus would finally do what they wanted him to do. That he would lead a revolution. They had a messianic expectation. They had read all the passages of the, of the Messiah coming, being sent by God to lead a revolution, to establish a kingdom, a throne in Jerusalem, a reign of peace. And while they were true, it was an incomplete understanding of the Messiah. Jesus will fulfill those prophecies. But Jesus came to do something first. And so the people come out thinking, Jesus, it's time for you to be king. To the point that he performs this miracle and they still want to make him king. And he has to send them away. So the people come out with the expectation, Jesus, we want you to lead a revolution. We want you to set us free from a physical captivity. And Jesus in that moment performs a miracle to hammer home who he really is in a very radical way. So here they are, you're Jewish people, you're in the hillside, you're waiting for revolution, you're waiting for this to go down, and Jesus, he performs a miracle, but not just any miracle, a miracle that directly ties back to your forefathers during a, a period in which they're making their way to the land of promise, and they're hungry, and God provides manna from heaven, bread from heaven to fill their bellies. He takes care of their need, he satisfies them. It was a promise of not only physical fulfillment, but one of spiritual fulfillment. There was meaning to this. God made himself evident to the people and the fact he took care of their need. To the point Moses says, collect some up, put it in a jar, put it in the ark so that we never forget this. And you're following Jesus, thinking he's going to do A, you go out into the wilderness and he does B that directly connects you back to one of the most radical moments in your people's history. When God fed you miraculously bread from heaven. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I came to do something different. I have compassion. I know you're hurting. I know you love John. I loved him too. But I'm not here to set you free from Rome. I'm here to set you free from sin. I'm here not just to put, put food in your belly, but I'm here to feed your soul. To the point that then they come and they're like, what's going on? Can we see a sign? He's like, were you not here yesterday? He's like, Moses didn't give you bread. God gave you bread and then I gave you bread. Make a conclusion. I am your God. I am more than just the king. I am your savior. I am the bread that satisfies the soul. You're focused on a physical need when you should be focused on a spiritual need. Now, one of the things I love about the miracle is that Jesus provides 
from what was visibly and observably limited. And let's even go a step further, a non-existent. How are you going to provide for this multitude? Five loaves and two fish is comical. That's not enough. And yet what happens? Jesus takes care of it by providing for the people out of nothing. He makes something out of nothing. Now there are times in our own lives where we are in those moments and, and we... And, and, Maybe it's a practical need. Maybe it's a spiritual need. And we're like, I don't see how there's any way, Jesus, you can provide. I don't see how you can take care of this. I don't see how there's a remedy. I don't see it. All I see is five loaves and two fish. That ain't enough. And five loaves and two fish in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. One more detail before we close. Do you think it's an accident? The disciples come to Jesus, say, there's this need. Send them away. Jesus is like, no, you take care of it. They're like, we have five loaves and two fish. He's like, okay. And then he uses the disciples in the process to feed the multitudes. I mean, their mind melt, right? I mean, can you imagine? And then do you think it's an accident after they work all of the day that there's a basket full? Twelve. Think twelve's an accident? There's 12 disciples, there's 12 baskets, this was for them. Which is interesting because when we go back to the Old Testament, in Exodus 16, they were specifically told don't take extra, it'll spoil. Except for one day, and that was the sixth. Why? Because the seventh was the Sabbath, and it was rest. And in my mind, the application of there being the 12 leftovers is that what were they all about to enter? It was a spiritual rest. I've provided not just enough for today, but enough for tomorrow, and enough for the day after, and the day after. Will you trust me? Will you lean on me? Will you believe in me? There's a lot of different ways you can go about tackling the feeding of the 5,000. And the applications I will leave to the Holy Spirit and you and where you're at. But I will close with this, the, the reiteration of the one idea. Jesus, I, I, I'm dying here. I'm hungry, not just my belly, I'm hungry, my soul. I don't, I'm dying on the vine here. And Jesus is like, I can take care of that. And you're like, but I don't know how. I can take care of that. But, but from what? I can take care of that. Jesus can make and has made and will continue to make all things out of nothing. And you don't have to know where it comes from. You just have to know who provides it. And will you believe in him? For those that believe in him, he is the bread of life and no one will will hunger. And then he'll say that he is living water and no one will thirst if you come to him. So we have this Old Testament story. We have this, what some even call a parabolic miracle. It's a miracle to kind of prove a big point that Jesus is trying to hammer home. 
He came to bring in a Sabbath, to usher in rest, peace, spiritually. How powerful. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.